For those of you who are new to me and Michelle is Money Hungry, I like to have conversations around money, empathy, and making financial decisions that are in alignment with one's personal beliefs. I even boycott entire states, I use a car share, and I even bring my own mug to Starbucks. And even though I'm boycotting entire states, don't worry, I've actually visited 45 of them, so the states that I'm boycotting right now, I know what I'm missing. But let's be clear, I don't always get it right. Like most folks, there are financial gray areas where I have to ask myself, is this right or wrong of me to even be involved with this at any level? Or is it right or wrong what this company is doing? In fact, right now I'm trying to decide if I will attend a conference and also a reunion this year, each one being held in different states that I actually happen to be boycotting as we speak. With that in mind, I thought that the following conversation about wallet activism would be a great one to share because every financial decision has the potential for a larger impact, both personally and for the greater good. And there's an ongoing conversation internally that I have with myself about, am I doing the right thing? Thank you so much for listening to Michelle is Money Hungry. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and I love having social equity focused financial conversations that lead with empathy. When I'm not talking money, I help stuck perfectionist entrepreneurs get out of their heads and get to work on their values driven brands through my brand building lab. Go to brandbuildinglab.com for more details. I'm so excited to tell you about my first personal finance book, Not a Financial Unicorn, which is available for pre-order now. If you're looking for inspiration, validation, and just ideas on how to better your financial life when you're feeling kind of financially low or you just need motivation, Not a Financial Unicorn is my way of motivating and validating the unsexy financial journeys that the majority of Americans have as they navigate through bridging the financial gap between financial policy, their finances, mindset, belief systems, and income. Pre-order your book today. A quick reminder, Michelle is Money Hungry is for entertainment purposes only. Always do your own due diligence in researching and understanding solutions related to your personal finances. Now, let's listen to the show. guest has no idea how geeked out I am about her new project. We were about to get into it before the show started. I was like, hold your thoughts inside so that we can get into it in the show. So people, I'm glad you're listening. You know, I've been on this thing about empathy and personal finance, about how our choices have meaning, all the things. And so today's guest Tanya Hester is going to walk us through her newest project, why it's so impactful, why it's so important. But first, for those of you who know who, or rather, for those of you who do not know who Tanya is, Tanya, if you could do me a favor and introduce yourself and what you do, that would be fantastic. Oh gosh, this is always one of those hard things. Um, Let's see. So these days I'm calling myself an author and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, 
before that, I think I was known in personal finance, mostly as a blogger and a podcaster, uh, but really my main career for a lot of years was working in political and social change consulting. And before that, as a journalist on public radio, and um, that is work that I suspect will come up a bit today uh, in some of what I'm, I'm talking about now, but I'm best known in personal finance for retiring at 38, just coming up on four years ago uh, with my husband, Mark. And I wrote about it on Our Next Life and in my book, Work Optional. And um, that was all great. And I'm really grateful that that was possible. But um, yeah, I'm sort of ready to move beyond talking about early retirement. (laughs) (laughs) You can only talk about like a thing for so long. And I'm glad that you brought this up. I feel like for some people, this new project that you're, we're going to really talk about and um, area of focus and personal finance might feel like it's a little bit of a pivot, but based on the work that you, you used to do, it's totally in alignment with your values. So if you could share a little bit about what is your new project, what you've been working on in the past year and a half, I suspect during lockdown and uh, let's do, let's do this. Let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a new book coming out November 16th called wallet activism, how to use every dollar you spend, earn and save as a force for change. And I'm super excited for it to be out in the world. I actually got the deal to publish it in February of 2020, right before lockdown started. (laughs) The irony. Yes. You're going to stay your ass home and write that book. (laughs) I, I don't recommend writing a book during a pandemic. If you can help it, it, it for sure changed the shape of it, but I, I, tell folks now work optional. My first book was the book. I had the opportunity to write, you know, Mm -hmm. I had a platform of a certain size. Publishers were interested in that fire was really trendy and it was like, okay, do you want to write this book or do you want to write no books? I was like, well, book or no book, of course I'm going to write the book and I'm proud of work optional. I love that. I was able to bring a much more values based approach to it and do things like recognize that plenty of people have massive debt or don't earn a lot of money or are a single income person or are renters or all the things that sort of get swept out of the fire story that, you know, you have to be a high earning tech bro who owns a home and, you know, doesn't have student loan debt, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm really proud I could bring that into that book, but talking just about helping people who have lots of advantages already get more advantages isn't really where my heart is. Um, it's the funniest thing in personal finance. And Michelle, I know you know this well, but we have to pretend so much of the time, like politics don't exist, like mm. societal problems don't exist. Like we don't live in the real world. And people just like to give this blanket advice out that applies to 1% of people. And I was really sick of having to push this huge part of myself down because I really did consider myself an activist in my career. And I spent almost 20 years trying to inform people about what was happening in government and elections and doing nonprofit focused consulting to push a whole bunch of causes, environmental causes, equality, um, you know, labor issues, problems around the world, things that we could make a difference on. And I didn't always love working for every single client. You know, I didn't always think they were going about things the right way, or in some cases, when you're looking at big philanthropy, they're 
questions of should we really be just not taxing billionaires and letting them put all this money into big foundations and then letting them set social policy without being accountable to voters or should we just tax them and then mm-hmm. we can all have a say on how that money is spent uh, that kind of thing but I, it really just meant a lot to me to get to work on causes that were close to my heart and so that's really who I am at my core and it's what I care most about and as my audience has grown and I've talked more about some social issues on social and on the blog, I've heard from a lot of folks who say, okay, well, now that I'm financially secure, what do I do with that money to use it in a good way? You know, how do I um, spend my money in the right way? How do I invest it in a way that's responsible? What else can I do? And I thought, I don't, actually no. Uh, There are a lot of conflicting bits of information out there. And there's also fundamentally the question of, is it up to us as individuals to solve some of the larger problems in society? I don't think it is entirely, but we can't absolve ourselves of our responsibility for the things that we're directly funding or we're we're directly creating markets for. Um, And so I decided to take on the project of figuring this out, of figuring out, okay, what is the right mindset to bring into shopping? What is the right mindset to bring into buying a home or choosing where to live, into where to work, how to earn a living, um, or how you conduct yourself in the workplace? Um, All those types of questions. And so that was a very long way of saying (laughs) that this is what I'm focused on now. And I'm really excited about it. And so Work Optional was the book I had the opportunity to write. And Wallet Activism was the book that I really, really wanted to write. What's interesting about the timing of this book and you getting this um, project is 2020 was the year that gave a lot of, um, I don't even know how to say this. There were so many conversations around this topic in 2020 and beyond, it blows my mind. So how did those conversations influence while while activism, which I just stuttered on, but how did those conversations influence the writing of this book? Because I, I can imagine that maybe you were going one way and then all of a sudden people were like, wait a minute, this is what's pissing us off or what have you. If you could share some insight into that, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, what was so interesting in writing this book while things were happening, like the pandemic, like seeing the ridiculous politicization of things like mask wearing, which is just, I mean, the most ridiculous thing. It's clear science. It's a piece of fabric. What are we fighting about? Um, To George Floyd being murdered by the Minneapolis police um, and seeing all the protests around that. it, It was really interesting to me to get to observe how people were thinking through all of those conversations out loud in the moment. And so you saw a lot of folks who hadn't necessarily thought about a lot of these issues before, or, you know, there was a lot of news during the initial like strict lockdown about how much the CO2 emissions were down in the world because people weren't commuting and taking vacations and were staying home. So you had conversations happening around racial justice, around politicization, politicization, I always trip over that, of (laughs) very basic science issues. You had people talking about the climate. And then, you know, now we've just had the new uh, UN IPCC report showing that we basically can't do anything to stop 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature rise globally, but, you know, we have to act before it gets worse. Um, So you had all these things happening and the people who were just learning about these and having their eyes open for the first time, it was interesting to hear how they were thinking about it. And then at the same time to see the folks who'd been working on these issues for a long time and seeing them go like, what took y'all so long? Why, why are you just now paying attention to this? But seeing how that uh, acted out and 
honestly, a lot of it reinforced for me the need for this book because there was so much desire from people to do something. And it was great if you could get out and protest. I couldn't, I'm really immunocompromised and my husband and I basically went nowhere. Uh, so I had to like lend my gear to friends so they could go <laughs> protest on, on my behalf. Uh, but I saw people hungry for a solution and you had people talking about, okay, well give to uh, mutual aid organizations or give to bail funds so that protesters who are getting arrested uh, won't have to struggle to get out of jail, that kind of stuff. And, and those are great steps, but that's a tiny, tiny slice of what we can actually do. And so I wanted to help people look at it more broadly and come up with really a, th a system for thinking through these things, because I can't give you every answer to every problem. We're going to have new problems arising all the time. Situations change. Maybe this week we're protesting against a company and boycotting them, but then next week they change their ways because of the boycott and protest. And now we actually should go give them our business to reward them for that and show companies that it's in their best interest to give in to boycotts and protest demands. Um, so anything I would write that's sort of a, here are X, Y, and Z decisions to make would quickly become outdated. So it's more a system of thinking. And a huge part of that is saying, let's follow the money. Who is funding these bad things we don't like? Where does that fund funding come from? Does it come directly from us as consumers? And should we withhold funding by not buying something? Does it come from um, big banks who are funding these projects? And should we stop banking with those banks because it's our savings accounts they're lending out to use to fund new fossil fuel projects, mm -hmm. things like that, of just helping people understand how these things happen. So you can see your own role in it and take a more active, um, a more active role in changing things rather than just sort of looking for like, where are a few places I can donate because I'm right. really worked up about this. Um, there's so much more we can do. And I wanted to give people those tools. As you were talking, I was I was listening, but I was also thinking about something, which is, I, I feel like in the personal finance space, there's this narrative that in thinking in this way and using your, your dollars for social good, that that's not necessarily American. Do, do you know what I mean? Or by helping others, that is something to look down on a little bit. Like it's charitable versus uplifting society. Listeners, I'm walking through this like train of thought. So bear <laughs> I know with what me you're here. saying. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of looked down on to approach life in this way. I've been on now it's like this second or third. I've moderated two or three panels on impactful investing and sustainable, sustainable investments and and this is something that I care about pretty deeply, but in every interaction with these conversations, I'm always left thinking, what is it that we can say to people about approaching life in this way that tells them that they aren't a punk? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That they, they aren't some do-gooder freaking liberal who's, who's just trying to uplift people who aren't working hard, which I don't agree with, you know, you know, you know, I'm just making these talking points. Do you know where I'm going with this? Does this even make sense? It, it does. I mean, I think fundamentally the personal finance space is really ruled by a very capitalist ethos. And it's funny because 
whenever you talk about one thing, folks will say, no, 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 free market, let the market decide. And then it's like, well, here I am. I'm the market. I'm deciding how to spend my money. Well, no, 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 not like that. Mm. Um, That seems to be the response. And I think it shows the deep hypocrisy, frankly, in a lot of it, that folks are interested in the things that benefit them and the things they perceive as hurting them, they think are are wrong. And I, I mean, I think we see this happening all over the country right now with these ridiculous bans on masks in schools. Like who does that help? It helps no one. This is just people trying to lash out and play into the fear of others. I think a lot of people in personal finance are fearful, honestly. I think they've been lied to and misinformed a lot about how the world works um, when it really should be in all of our best interest to create a better economy and a better society that benefits more people. Because when everyone does better, we all do better. Henry Ford knew that. He paid his workers in the car plants uh, who made the Model T enough that they could buy the Model T because he knew if he paid them enough, he would sell more cars. Um, And we seem to have totally lost track of that. All the people who say we shouldn't have a minimum wage, um, that's ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) When we pay people more, that juices the economy. It means you sell more of everything. I mean, we could have a different conversation that's more environmentally focused and say, is that better for the planet? Can we actually sustain that level of consumption? But that's a different question. Uh, I think people have just been really brainwashed by capitalism to really distort what it actually is. And, you know, I think you could also have a very serious critique of capitalism, which I touch on very briefly in the book. But the fact is we live in a capitalist culture and society. And so my goal was to say, even if you hate the system and you wish it would all burn down, here's how we can operate within it. And so in essence, we're playing by those rules. You want to let the market decide, okay, we are the market, we will decide. Um, And I wanted people to feel really empowered in that. And sometimes it goes against liberal dogma, frankly, some of the best things we can do, like really looking at the data you see, for example, with food, uh, I think that there's a belief that you should either eat vegan, or if you can't, you should eat the most uh, regenerative meat and the all organic produce and all these things. When really, if we all ate organic, it all the time, it would actually take much more farmland to feed us all. Um, We couldn't feed the world easily that way without converting a lot of wilderness into farmland. And so we actually need some non-organic food, Um, but it's being deliberate and choosing, okay, for soy, uh, that's often a GMO crop that's sprayed with Roundup. Well, I don't want that. And I don't want to support the damage that does to the communities around those farms. So I'm going to do organic soy if I do soy. Um, But with something like um, an avocado where you don't eat the skin and it's, it's all tucked in there, maybe <laughs> organics, not as important. And so actually making people feel empowered that it's not these blanket solutions, but we can think more closely about things and make better choices. And, you know, if that means playing by the rules of capitalism, let's do it. One of the things that's really interesting is this idea of social good and, and labor is not new actually. So one of the most interesting experiments that I like to reference all the time that not enough people know about is the Kellogg experiment, where the Kellogg company, basically, they were looking to employ more people, and they were looking to also keep their like employees happy. And so what they did was they shortened the workday so that this was like in the 20s or 30s. They shortened the workday, they paid their employees a little bit more, and what they found, and they were able to employ more people, actually. So what they found, none of this should surprise you, is that worker happiness and satisfaction shot through the roof. They found that civic engagement shot through the roof. Like all these indicators for social good went through the roof. 
Why they decided to change back, I don't remember why. I'm not sure what went on in that that conversation. But I think in order to get people to buy into approaching work and approaching spending in a different way, we as activists in the space or proponents, we have to show that it actually will either one, make people more money, uh, people also being companies because apparently companies are human and also the, the labor. What say you? I agree with that. I, I do think that if we went out saying we want to kill private enterprise and move to a completely socialist state where the government owns all the means of production, I mean, that would, that would fail. Uh, no one would go for that, even if it would be better for them in the long run. So given the system we have, given the culture we have, we do have to sometimes show that it's it's in the interest of private enterprise and of people who are trying to get rich um, to do the right thing. So I talk about, you know, if you believe that we need to have fewer fossil fuel uh, projects being dug, that means fewer gas guzzling cars on the road. It means less heat and air conditioning for our homes in ways that are generated by coal in the power plants or by natural gas or propane in your furnace. Um, And that means we have to make choices. So we have to show companies who sell electric cars um, that they can do very well doing that so that other companies say, well, look how well they're doing. I'm going to move to electric, which we see some of that happening. Um, But we right now only see that really happening with cars. We don't have a big market, for example, for electric furnaces or um, making heat pumps cheaper, things that could actually benefit your home without burning fossil fuels. So that's just one example. But I do think that it's not just about removing demand. It's not just saying, okay, here are things I won't buy. It's also being deliberate about what we do buy to show by example, by creating demand for things that are better for us overall. How do you frame it as choices versus sacrifice? Because I think that especially as we get deeper into what wallet activism actually is, there's definitely a a listener who's like, I want my car. I want my, I want my life to not be impacted in a negative way. So how do you frame it as it won't be negative? Um, You're just making a choice. And this is the impact that that choice will, will have on the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think in some cases it probably will feel like a sacrifice if you choose to do things. But I make very clear at the beginning of the book that you're not going to be able to do everything that's listed here. This is to give you as many options as possible so you can do what feels like it will fit into your life right now. And then if down the road, it feels like you can make more changes, then even better. Um, And I talk about how perfect is absolutely not the goal. Like one thing that really um, I, I just it drives me up the wall a little bit is the so-called zero waste movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that the goals of it are really great. But the fact that zero is in the name tells you that if you have one piece of garbage, you have failed. Um, You don't belong there. You're not good enough. Um, It's all about ideological purity. And that is not how we make real change. We need everybody to be reducing their waste a little bit or a moderate amount, not a few diehard people reducing it to an extreme level. And that's, I think, the mindset to bring to this and how I wrote the book is with that sort of inclusive spirit of whatever in this works for you, do that. Um, But I think a lot of it too, rather than sort of sacrifice versus choice, I would put it in a different frame, which is more like, let's try to deprogram ourselves from what 
capitalism has taught us uh, that you need to consume constantly to be happy, that you need to get the cheapest thing possible because the deal is more important than the quality or the impact on the earth or on workers or on the whole supply chain that brings that thing to you. Um, once we start to actually break that down and look at, okay, what is it that marketers have been telling me? And is that actually true? Do I actually need this thing? It actually becomes easier to just sort of have these things feel like a choice um, and feel like what's good for you. And I show people too, that certainly buying less is great for your personal finances. Um, so this is also good for you on a different level. Um, but I, th I think the deprogramming and sort of seeing through all the marketing lies is such a fundamental piece of the book. And I, th I think that's really like, to me, it's, here are a lot of things that should make you mad. Uh, and now that you're mad, don't you want to change what you do so that you're no longer rewarding these companies for lying to you and tricking you? Uh, that to me is where the empowerment is more than saying, here's a whole bunch of stuff you have to give up. Cause I really try not to do that. It's funny because I very much consider myself a wallet activist. And so in my life that shows up in the fact that I don't own a car anymore. Um, I use a car share because Colorado is going to Colorado. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, so I, I use a car share. It's a nonprofit. I love that it's a nonprofit actually, because I think how they approach their business model is different than say, if it's, it was a for-profit. Um, so not only do I feel good about using a fleet of cars that are hybrids and, and impacting the earth in that kind of way, because that's something I'm very concerned about. It's directly global warming direct, directly impacts me in my town on a daily basis at this point. I also have saved thousands of dollars. The average American pays around 9,000 in car related expenses. And I'm averaging this year is a little on the higher end, obviously, because we're getting back in the world, but I was averaging the first two years about I'd say $600 in car related transportation expenses. And so that impacted my wallet and in, in the way that I ran my business and the way that I was able to pay off that enormous unsecured debt that I was dealing with, that unruly debt. So it really changed my options. I shop locally. That's something that I really care about. I, I run a Colorado website and podcast. And the goal is to really uplift those those companies, organizations, and really cool people, because I understand that each dollar that I spend locally is in the community longer versus say, if I were to shop at a big box store. And so there are certain things that I've been doing for a really long time, actually. I, I'm wondering, have you always been a wallet activist and how did, how has that kind of played out in your life? It's interesting. i think that I have tried to be for most of my life, but certainly I think a lot of folks can relate to this. There was the period when I, I mean, certainly within college, when I had less than no money, <laughs> I was deeply <laughs> in debt. Then my early twenties, when I was just kind of getting my feet under me and starting to tackle some of that debt, because within a couple of years of graduating, I had my student loans, which thankfully weren't massive, but when you're earning very little, it feels massive. Then I had a car that I bought when I moved to LA because you need a car there. So everyone says, and I financed that 100%. Then I had some credit card debt. And so it was just this whole vicious thing of this 
huge, <laughs> huge debt. I have little puppies over there. Sorry about that. Um, so I had this big debt and I was earning very little and I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices then because I felt like I had to do whatever I could afford to do um, and make things as cheap as possible. And I think a lot of people feel that. And that's why I've, I've given people ways to say, okay, you know, if you can only shop at Walmart, if that's your best option. And I know the liberals love to say how evil Walmart is. I am not a fan of Walmart, but that's the best option for a lot of people. And there's no point acting like everyone's going to be able to shop at their local artisanal grocer and only buy handmade options, you know, from uh, wonderful craftspeople. And so um, I said, okay, if you have to do that, here are some of your options to reduce the impact of that or the, reduce the negative impact. Um, same with Amazon doing that. If that's the way that you need to shop, here are ways you can do that better. Um, but I think that one of the things that I've faced and one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book is frankly, because I wanted to read this book because I often felt like, okay, I have this sense that it's bad to shop at Walmart and Amazon. I have this sense that I should probably not be buying new cars all the time. I have this sense that, um, you know, stainless steel is cool and all the eco people seem to love that. So I should probably get a stainless steel water bottle. Um, but I didn't actually know if those things were truly impactful. And in doing the research for this book, I, I learned over and over again, how so many of the things that we have been told are the right thing to do are in fact, not beneficial. You know, there was this idea a number of years back that plastic was bad. We should all stop drinking out of plastic. And so every person I know who cares about that bought a stainless steel water bottle. Well, guess what? Stainless steel is incredibly resource intensive to produce. It requires iron to be mined. Uh, much of that happens in South America and in Asia and Australia, and then has to be shipped tremendous distances. Then it goes through a process of smelting uh, to become steel, which has to be done with coal. You basically can't fire a uh, iron or steel furnace hot enough with anything but coal. There's no way to do that with wind power or solar, or any renewables. Then it goes through more processes to become the stainless steel. And all of that is polluting. All of that is harmful to the workers who work around it. And then you've got this thing that's really hard to recycle because it's a non-standard shape. It's not, you know, the standard thing that goes in the recycle bin. And I realized, you know, we're all being told to do this thing. We're all doing this thing that we think is better than drinking water out of plastic bottles, but we're really creating this huge burden on the planet and on other people to get us this thing and spending stupid amounts of money in many cases, because the cool brand ones are 50 bucks for a water bottle. Um, and that was an example of where I just thought this can't be right. And I feel like we all believe the wrong things. We want to do good. We're trying to do good, but we're not given the full picture and full information. And as a result, we're making counterproductive choices. We're actually working against the thing we're trying to do. Um, and so I would say I was often a frustrated wallet activist, or I would say, oh, I just don't know what the right thing is. And I think we can all relate to this. You think, well, gosh, if I can't tell what it is, then what's even the point? I'll just buy the, you know, the cheap crap or whatever. Um, and so it was, coming to understand that people just needed a clearer roadmap to understand the true impact of their choices. And then it would become much more obvious. And now I say, if you have a water bottle at home, use that. Whatever you already have is almost undoubtedly better than something that you might buy that's been newly manufactured or barring that going secondhand and just washing it really well. Um, those are better options, but that wasn't information I felt like I had. We talked about cars what about clothing? I've been using a online consignment store for quite a while now. Get my clothes used. They've been great. Weirdly enough, I get them used, but a lot of times they're, they've never been worn and the tags are still on. 
Could you talk about clothing and the impact of fast, fast casual and how we can be wallet activists in that space? We got to wear, we got to wear something. We can't walk around naked. Absolutely. I, I think since the industrial revolution, garment workers in particular have been one of the most exploited labor forces. And so clothing has really never been priced according to what it would actually take to produce if everyone was given a living wage, if the textiles that go into it were produced in a responsible way. Um, so I think to the extent that you can look for organic cotton, organic hemp, or just natural fibers, period. So, you know, people don't realize how much of our clothing now is made of plastic. And that's that means every time you wash it, you're putting microplastics into the water that may get into the ocean. Uh, you're um, requiring more oil to be pumped out of the ground to make your clothing. And so just going to natural fibers is a huge step. If you can't do that, going secondhand, um, if you can do secondhand and natural fibers, that's even better. But I think at the very basic level, as much as you can avoid uh, fast fashion, the sort of like H&M, uh, Mango, I can't even list uh, Zara. I've Fortunately, I've stopped mostly shopping and so I forget all the stores that are in that category, but I'm sure folks know Old Navy definitely yeah. fits that um, because there are a few reasons. One, you know, if clothing is that cheap, that it was produced by workers oftentimes in countries like Bangladesh, where they have almost no uh, rights for workers. So very few safety rules. Uh, there have been multiple factory collapses that have killed hundreds of workers, fires. I mean, really horrible, horrible stuff uh, that happens to make cheap clothing. Um, it, it has to happen. If you pay everybody a U.S. minimum wage even, which is still not enough to get by here. If you pay everybody a U.S. minimum wage to make your clothes, which a U.S. minimum wage isn't even enough to get by in the U.S., but if you pay everybody that, your clothes would get a lot more expensive. So there's one, just knowing that the cheap clothing is made by exploitation, I think is a really helpful thing to keep in mind. And suddenly you look at this top that, oh, I could have bought that top, but oh, wait, the person who made this for me is earning you know, pennies an hour uh, to make this. Well, do I really want it? I, th I think that changes the calculus. But the other thing, and this is something that I think we need to talk about more, is that garment workers are very talented. We tend to talk about cheap clothing as being poorly made or disposable or things like that when none of those are actually true. What makes cheap clothing fall apart quickly is that we treat it badly. When you get something very cheaply, you don't value it the same way that you do something that you've paid more for. And so I'm not going to say you have to pay $100 for a dress or any number. The number is relative to you, but the more you feel like you've invested a meaningful amount in something, the better you take care of it. And the longer it will therefore last you, the more I hope you'll wear it. Um, it's no good to put stuff aside for special occasions. You know, wear your clothes. That's the best thing you can do. Um, <laughs> but I think that mindset of getting, you know, getting away from buying cheap stuff and knowing that when something is cheap and we perceive it as bad quality, a lot of that is how we treat it, not how it inherently is. Wallet activism seems to take form in many different ways. So mm -hmm. you've touched on wallet activism from a social good standpoint. You've touched on wallet activism from a environmental uh, standpoint. What other forms of wallet activism can we engage in that can make a difference in the world. 
There are so many. I, I think all of them hopefully benefit both people and the planet in some way. And we need to stop thinking of those things as separate. So often environmental organizations will talk about the ocean or these animals, and they won't talk about environmental justice, the people who are harmed by pollution or uh, the people whose homes are being destroyed because climate change is causing many more extreme weather events. All of this stuff is connected and we have to stop acting like it's not. Um, but the other categories of things we can do, there are so many. It's choosing the food that we eat. It's choosing where we live. And that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean choosing an existing home over new construction because of the environmental and often uh, social cost of new construction. Um, it can mean attempting, you know, doing your very best not to be a gentrifier. Uh, if you move into an urban neighborhood, especially, it can mean how you conduct yourself at work or even the type of work you're willing to do. You know, maybe it's a bunch of people choosing to deny the best talent to a whole industry so that that industry is forced to change their ways in order to attract more talent. Uh, I think there's tremendous opportunity for that with millennials and Gen Z, especially because they are so values driven in their choices. Um, and so refusing to work for bad guy companies or in bad guy industries is huge. Um, it can be as we talked about a bit, how you invest, but honestly, more important than how you invest is how you bank, where you bank. That's something that we aren't talking about nearly enough. Um, and it can be how you donate your money or simply donating more, um, but donating it in a thoughtful way. Uh, so it's, it's really a wide array of categories. And so the way that I think about it is anytime a financial decision is being made, there is an opportunity for wallet activism. And that is going to look different for you, Michelle, than it will look for me. It's going to look different for you listening um, and the people you know. The goal isn't to hit some level of perfect wallet activism. It's to be constantly looking for opportunities to say, where else can I either make positive change or at least you know, refuse to participate in this system that harms other people or harms the planet? I'm really excited about the fact that you brought up banking. Could we talk about that briefly? For sure. For some people, they may be, may be thinking, well, what about banking? Like I just put my money in there and we're all good. There are banks that I refuse to even walk past. Smells Fargo, that might be you. <laughs> so could you talk banking and why that as wallet activism is so important? Banking is hugely important because it really affects so much of the systemic racism, the systemic pollution, you know, all the different things that happen are enabled by the banking system. So the biggest funders of fossil fuel projects in the world are JP Morgan Chase. That is the source of those fancy points credit cards that a lot of folks in the fire movement love. And they are getting those points off of fossil fuel projects. Um, Next is uh, Wells Fargo, then Citi, then Bank of America. And so if you are banking with any of those four banks um, and really any of the big multinational banks, your savings money is going, it's being lent out to fossil fuel companies to fund their projects. And so you can be saying fossil fuels are bad. I'm reducing how much I'm using. I'm getting rid of my car. I'm traveling less. I'm flying less. I'm doing all these things. But then your bank is still funding those projects with your money. It's other things too, though. It's looking at housing discrimination, the practices like redlining that limit who can live in what neighborhoods and what, what skin colors of people can get loans. Um, that used to be legal. It's now illegal. It's been illegal for 50 years or so, uh, but it still happens because 
every loan is determined individually. It's subjective. Um, and so it's very hard to catch people doing this or to punish banks for doing this. So there is still a ton of discrimination in lending, particularly in housing. Uh, and if you're banking with one of the big banks, your money is also then going to fund mortgages that are primarily going to wealthier, whiter people and are not going to brown, black, Asian, you know, people who are not white. And so it's important to know what you're funding, what you're supporting. I mean, in this case, very directly funding with investments, you're not in most cases actually directly funding the company. If you buy during the IPO, you are. Otherwise, you're giving your money to the shareholder who wanted to sell those shares. You are helping to bolster the share price, which has effects that you may not wish to support. Uh, but with banking, there's a much more direct line between your money and bad things that happen with it. So I really encourage folks to think about switching banks and potentially get rid of some of those perks filled credit cards with the big banks, uh, if you possibly can, and look instead at things like credit unions, uh, community banks, black owned banks. There are a few new banks that have a different business model that are focused on funding community projects, but they're still for profit like a regular bank. Uh, and there are in fact now some nonprofit banks, unionized banks. I mean, you've got lots and lots of options, many of which have great online platforms. So you aren't going to lose anything in terms of functionality. Uh, but that's a big decision that I really hope more folks will consider. Is your fire life, your past fire focus in opposition, like indirect opposition to where your values are right now. Like having spent time doing this research and working on this project, is there, do you feel a little conflicted or, or were you able to um, make financial decisions that were in alignment? It's a great question. I don't think that I feel conflicted because we were never trying to max out travel points, for example, that are gotten on the back of poorer people um, with those banks. Um, we weren't trying to do the real estate investment that where people really, really take advantage of low-income tenants uh, and, and basically are fine operating as slumlords. We didn't do that. I've always spoken against that. Um, one of the things that achieving financial independence let us do is I was able to start a petition a few years ago after the Parkland shooting in Florida, when I learned, I, I should have known this, but I learned then that um, several gun manufacturer stocks were on the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. And we didn't feel good about that because we were heavily invested in the S&P and said, okay, how can we have a better option? And I started a petition on change.org that got almost a hundred thousand signatures asking Vanguard to give us options that didn't include those bad guys. And I can't take credit for this because I don't know actually what happened, but a few months later, they announced funds that didn't have gun stocks or fossil fuels. They took a whole bunch of things out, but they were otherwise very similar to the S&P. And so we were able to start moving our investments over. Um, folks who invest know that's a gradual process. You don't want to move everything all at once or you have a huge, huge tax bill, um, but it's something we've been able to shift to over time. And so we had always, I think on some level been mindful, but then, you know, getting to that point gave us new leverage. Companies listen to their biggest customers a lot more than they do the folks who have $5 invested. Um, so I think if you have gotten to a point of financial stability and security that you feel maybe a little uncomfortable about, think about how you can use that level of wealth for good, um, to use it as leverage to try to force change. And to me, the Vanguard example is really shows that that's possible. One of the really interesting things that I've seen in the personal finance space is I think 
an acceleration in this conversation and just um, products and tools and resources that we as consumers can say yes to. Uh, in your banking conversation, you brought up opening up accounts in other spaces. I want to also bring up that there are Hispanic banks, there's Native American banks located here in Denver, and then there's also line options as well that are starting to happen. And as we wrap up the conversation, I, I would love to hear what is it that you're noticing in the personal finance space in terms of the conversation around wallet activism and what we can do to be a part of the change or to, to um, be more impactful than just, you know, recording a recording a podcast episode or tweeting about something what are, what are you noticing out there that we can be become a part of yeah when i first started blogging which i think I, this is where i become an old person who can't remember anything <laughs> i think it's been almost 7 years oh my um, god <laughs> is my recollection okay Maybe it's been six. I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Anyway, so it's been more than half a decade, we'll say. Um, when I first started, and I certainly wasn't aware of every single blog, but I read a lot of blogs back then. I was very connected on Twitter to other bloggers and podcasters. And it really felt then like it was extremely taboo to talk about anything that someone would deem political. And y'all know, I mean, if so, if you say something as a woman, that is considered a political statement. Like, no, being born, you know, a gender or a sex is not um, a political statement. <laughs> it's just it just who is. I, it just is. Um, but so much was politicized, you know, talking about healthcare, which I wanted to talk about a lot because that's really important for early retirees to think about. And especially because I have chronic illness, my husband has autoimmune disease. We had to be planning for healthcare, but every time I would bring it up, people would be like, oh, you're promoting Obama. And I was like, well, I love Obama, but no, I'm not <laughs> mentioning him at all. I'm just talking about the need for health insurance. Why did that become a political statement? Um, and so there was just all this pressure to not rock the boat, to not talk about anything so-called political, I'm doing air quotes, uh, and to just stick to things that everyone was comfortable with. And I think that a lot of us realized pretty quickly that that was doing our audiences a huge disservice because people don't live in that world. You live in a world in which you need healthcare. You live in a world in which more than half of us are, are female um, or, you know, trans women or, you know, trans people generally, we have different needs than the sort of white male hetero archetype that society is built around. And so we needed to give people more tools, more information of how to make good decisions when you don't have perfect circumstances around you. Um, and I think that really led to people feeling more free to have a broader set of conversations of, Hey, I'm not comfortable doing the real estate investing that a lot of people promote and fire because that feels like it's actually exploiting poor people for my profit. And I don't feel good about that. Um, for example. And so I've actually recently proposed on my blog that we split up fire. And in fact, that we retire the term, because I think it's really been taken over by people who are just trying to sell all this stuff. It's like they invested $25,000 and now they're an expert in fire and you should give them money for their ebook. That's not been edited or vetted by anyone. Um, that to me is, is not where we should be heading. So I think the, the, communities in many ways been co-opted by those forces, but it's also really just apparent that it's no longer this singular group of people who are all after the same thing. I think there are those who are really interested in securing their own security, um, taking care of themselves, their family, the things they care about. And they're not really interested in looking outside of that bubble. And then there are all the rest of us who can I swear? 
course you can swear. I, all of my, all of my shows are explicit, even when they're not. So there you go. So then there are all the rest of us who give a shit about the world and about other people. And we want to know that we're not building wealth on the backs of others. We want to know that we're not doing things that are particularly benefiting from exploitation of the planet or of people. And so I think that more of those conversations are happening in a really good way. And if you're not seeing them, you're just following the wrong people and that's okay. You just have to dig a little deeper. Um, you can look at who I follow on Twitter. If that's helpful to you. Um, I fortunately purged basically all of those like course pusher folks out uh, and really follow the people who care about the world around us. And so, uh, I think it's really positive. I, I just want us to be able to stop pretending like we're all in the same club together because we're after very different things. Um, and so folks who are, who give a shit, I do think there's really a home for you in personal finance. I think Michelle, you give a great home to folks, uh, where folks can be full people with complicated lives and political interests, um, and things you want to do. And, I'm just really hopeful that that conversation will keep expanding, will keep being more inclusive because I recognize, you know, I'm talking about racial justice as a white woman. Um, I would love more voices to be in this. This is one of those things where it was like, okay, well, I don't see anybody else writing this book and I have an opportunity in a big enough platform that I know I can get it published. So I will, but really my hope is that that opens the door for more people to build on this, to, you know, write bigger and better books and do other projects that just blow this conversation wide open um, and make it accessible to even more people. Would you say that wallet activism is more of a, more of an environmental social justice book, or is it, is it a mix and it depends on the path you want to go? I want to leave this conversation, giving people a little more clarity that maybe you don't have to do all the things. Maybe there's just one passion that you really want to focus on. Is that okay? It 100% is okay. And I'm looking at the table of contents right now to, to remind myself, but I think it's in chapter three. So pretty early in the book, we actually go through an exercise of mapping out your values of looking at what are the issues you care most about? What are the things that you need to see? You know, are you a tangible person who needs to see an impact in your community with your own eyes? Or is it enough for you to know that you're making a difference kind of theoretically questions like that. So that you actually then put together, it really builds on the money mission statement that I didn't work optional, but this one is much more values-based to say, okay, when you're faced with a decision, how do you want to prioritize it? So are you someone who really cares about racial justice more than anything? Well, then that's going to guide you to do things like shop at stores owned by people of color, where someone else who's fundamentally interested in minimizing our fossil fuel use and our resource extraction from the earth as much as possible, they're going to not shop. And those are very different decisions that are guided by your values. So that's really to me what it's all about is most of us just don't take the time to sit and think, okay, what do I care most about? How does that express itself through my financial choices? What are the values I hold dear? And how do I want to put all that together? So I'm trying to give people the tools to have that conversation uh, with themselves so that they can say, okay, this is, this is clear. I, you know, I'm okay shopping at Walmart, but I'm not going to shop on black Friday uh, or during peak periods when employees tend to get a lot of injuries. Um, I'm okay, you know, doing X, Y, or Z, uh, but here's how I'm going to do it in a way that suits my values better, or I'm not going to do that thing anymore because my values contradict that. Um, and so absolutely, that's why I say wallet activism is going to look completely different for everybody. It's going to depend on your values. It's going to depend on your resources, the time you have. Not everyone has the time to 
secondhand shop. You know, that's really time consuming to dig through the racks or go through all the stuff online. Um, And so if you don't have that time, then secondhand shopping is not going to be part of your life. And I, I really stress that there's no one solution to any of this stuff. It's just about all of us being more deliberate. Um, That can have a big impact. Even if you feel like you're just doing things for you, that still matters. It's funny that you ended up with that uh, comment because I was going to ask you for the person who's like, I'm one person, does what I'm doing even make a difference? It does. It 100% does. If you think about all the stuff that you have in your home and all that adds up to, I mean, that's a lot of stuff. That That is a meaningful amount of stuff that you have bought, even if you're not a big shopper. Um, but especially if you are, we tend to forget about kind of our cumulative impact over time. We just look at, okay, well, this one grocery shop trip, you know, how much did I not buy that I would have bought before? Maybe I bought less meat than I would have bought in the past. That doesn't add up, but over time, it absolutely adds up. But that said, the more we can all talk about this with each other and spread the word and help to get others on board, certainly the more impact we can have. So this is an example of, you know, it's an individual set of actions you're going to take on. But if we can add those together, then very quickly it becomes collective action. And that's where the bigger power is. But that doesn't mean that your individual action doesn't matter. What is your ultimate goal with wallet activism? And why do you feel like this book is so important now? I hope it's important. I hope it's impactful and and it helps people clarify their thoughts and feel more empowered in their decision-making. I mean, ultimate goal, I say at the very end that really, I hope that wallet activism is a gateway to more action, to activism outside of the financial sphere. Uh, I would love to see more people running for office, trying to change who our elected officials are and get more people in who will actually create real change and not just maintain the status quo. Um, I would love for it to be overhauling how decisions are making at different levels, both in the U.S. and around the world. Um, That to me is the ultimate, is that we can make real change, that we can do things like defund the fossil fuel projects and force a shift to renewable energy um, to meet our Paris agreement goals, but also uh, that, you know, we just get a lot more people involved generally and a lot fewer people throwing up their hands and saying, ah, it's hopeless. There's nothing I can do. The problem's too big. Um, I want us all to feel that we can make a difference because we absolutely can. But if we then use that at a higher level and, and get involved in decisions at a governmental level, at a policy level, that's 10 times better. Tanya, thank you so much. I'm so excited about this book. If people would like to follow what you're doing, where you're at, um, share all the things, share them so that we can support you. And yes, people, they're all going to be in the show notes. Just saying. Yes. Go to the show notes, click through them. That is always the best. Um, I'm mostly active on Twitter and Instagram and the handle there. uh, This is I should have thought this through six or seven years ago or whenever I started these (laughs) handles, but I didn't. So it's at our underscore next life. So O-U-R underscore N-E-X-T-L-I-F-E. That's like our next life, my blog. So ournextlife.com is the blog. And there you can find links to all the other things I do. Um, I'll soon have info up about the book. Um, You can also go to my personal website, tanyahester.com, T-A-N-J-A Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R.com. And there I've got, yeah, book order links and all the other stuff that I do sort of outside of the blog. Um, So yeah, lots of options. I'm very findable. Um, If you want to reach out to me, the best way is to tweet at me or send me a message on Instagram. That's how I am. Most responsive because I definitely suck at email these days. 
And people, when you reach out, don't be a weirdo. Thank you so much, Tanya. (laughs) Serious for your time. And I am thrilled to read this book. And oh, even though there is a paper copy, if you're into the environmental side, you can buy it digitally. Just saying. Absolutely. There will definitely be eBooks. You can also request your library, get it. If it's not in your budget to get a book or you've like sworn off any book buying for a while, um, doing that helps too. Michelle, thank you so much. This was super fun. It means so much to me that you love the book and I can't wait for everybody else to be able to read it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.